0: One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons.
1: Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. When the moon is a cold chiseled dagger and it's sharp enough to draw blood from a stone. He rides through your dreams on a coach and horses and the fence posts in the moonlight look like bones.
0: My very special guest on this edition of Music was my first love has been making music since 1975 with hits such as 2468 motorway don't take no for an answer glad to be gay and war baby as well as writing collaborations with the likes of elton john peter gabriel dan hartman and martin joseph he has cemented his name as one of britain's premier and highly respected songwriters and recording artists as an activist he was one of the early supporters of rock against racism and amnesty international as well as being a prominent advocate of lgbt equality since 2002, with the launch of BBC Radio 6, Music has forged a new career in broadcasting and figured prominently in the campaign to save the station when it was threatened with closure in 2010. I've been lucky to talk with several recording artists over five series of Music was My First Love, but possibly none as big or as influential as Tom Robinson. And with lots to talk about, we'll hear from Tom after his first choice, which is from The take it, take it, take it, Beatles. That man could sing rock and roll. Tom Robinson, (laughs) welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. And after some recent touring, I trust we find
1: you well-rested. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, That was the the first record I ever bought, and it still sounds fresh as a daisy even now.
0: Yeah, it does. And he could sing rock and roll.
1: He certainly could. Uh, (laughs) I think, you know, his idols who he later got to meet, certainly agreed. People like Little Richard. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Now, I, I must yeah. tell you, um, I, I interviewed somebody a couple of weeks ago who asked me to send their best wishes to you when I said that you were coming on, um, and that was Neil Arthur.
1: Oh, right. Thank uh, you, Neil. Yeah. So
0: I thought I would pass that on now before I forget. Did you uh, did you grow up in a house full of music?
1: Uh, yeah, but the wrong kind of music. Oh, OK. I, I, play, I liked the wrong kind of music. My dad... Uh, Liked Baroque music. He played the cello and uh, sang madrigals. And uh, <laughs> uh, he thought uh, he he didn't have a very high opinion of rock and roll. With my <laughs> brother, when my brother brought home the first Bill Haley seventy eight uh, in nineteen fifty four or fifty five, whenever it was, uh, my dad was completely appalled.
0: <laughs> and did he um did he see your success?
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, he lived, lived to see... Uh, I mean, he <laughs> he was very much against me embarking on a career, uh, trying to be successful in music. I think, you know, probably wisely, because yeah. it was an extremely precarious thing to attempt to do. But, you know, um, when, when I'd had a, a hit record and been on the TV and stuff, he, fair play to him, he wrote me a congr- letter of congratulation. And who so, who were you
0: listening to then that influenced you in both performing and writing?
1: Well, The Beatles was the first record I bought at age 13 in 1963, and that's because, you know, a 13-year-old's pocket money didn't stretch to an album back no. then, and, uh, <laughs> or indeed for many years after. So uh, an EP was something you could save up for. It was seven and sixpence, I think it was. Uh, at the time, and you've got four songs and a picture sleeve and some sleeve notes on the back, and uh, I just played it to death, twist and shout, uh, do you want to know a secret, till there was you, there's a place, you know, just uh, imprinted in my brain. Because I think the thing we easily forget today is how rare music was, how difficult it was to hear all this music that was being made. People go on about how the 60s was a great era for pop music and it was but actually it was very very difficult to hear it Mm. so unless it was played on the radio you know you'd you'd wait for top of the pops to come on and hope that somebody would play your current favorite hit i
0: wanted to jump ahead a bit because it ties in nicely with your second choice and so wanted to talk with you a little uh, if i may about glad to be gay you've cited david bowie Uh, as an influence for being able to write and record the song, saying when he died, uh, and I quote, I couldn't possibly have done that had it not been for David Bowie, because Bowie and his music made such an impact on me in in my early 20s, in 72, that I swore to myself that if I ever, ever had the chance to do for other people as he'd done for me in terms of changing my life and seeing that I had choices, that it was possible to have a happy life. If you were attracted to the same sex, that message was not there before, because in the 60s, men went to prison if they were gay, so there wasn't a role model. Bowie was the first person who came along. I mean, it's cool. Now, that came from Newsnight on the day he died. Um, tell me more detail about the effect uh, and the impact that Bowie had on you, both professionally and personally.
1: Well, I think um, it's what's true for me was also true for a whole generation of uh, kind of non-heterosexual kids who grew up in the kind of 60s youth revolution. Uh, So society was changing and uh, people were standing up for their rights and getting them and there's the black civil rights movement in America, there's the women's movement. Uh, And so we were aware of things changing and all this amazing music was getting made and so you'd be buying Beatles records or you'd be buying Manfred Mann records or whoever, Nina Simone records. Um, But they were all about... Somebody else's life, hmm. uh, because there's this uh, this contradiction between your love of music and your love of the wrong person, if you like. You know, I was in yeah. love with another boy at school. I never dared tell him. But there was nothing in music that reflected my life. So even when you listen to a love song about somebody who's heartbrokenly staring at somebody in the distance, you'd go, well, that's almost like my life. Mm. Uh, But it was never quite because the pronouns were always wrong. The closest thing, I think, was the Beatles' uh, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Yeah. And uh, I used to listen to that going, oh, that's just how I feel. Uh, And it was only years later I found out that Lennon wrote it after going on holiday to Spain with Brian Epstein. And he actually almost certainly wrote that lyric about Brian Epstein's situation. But, uh, of course, I couldn't possibly know that as a teenager living in kind of rural Essex at the time. So all through the 60s, we went through having this kind of disconnect between the music you loved and the emotions that you felt. And... When Bowie arrived, it was the first time that first-class, world-class music was being made, and you could hear it and buy it. And it was about you. So I would listen to the whole of the Hunky Dory album and go, that's that's my life, he's talking about there. And there's the, you know, the Queen Bitch, and mm. particularly the mysterious... Uh, dark record that ends it which uh, we're going to hear in a minute the Beaulieu brothers Uh, it was really such a revelation to have somebody sing singing my life with his words as the uh, as the song has it and uh, that's what Bowie did for me so I really appreciated it and I thought if I can write music that other people who feel like I do can relate to then so much the better did you meet him Never wanted to.
0: Um,
1: Because you were a fan and wanted to stay a fan? Yeah, you should never meet your heroes. I I don't know. know. Um, His significance to me was in what he put into the music, not who he was as a man or as a person. And there were far more interesting people that I really wanted to meet, like Brian Eno, who I finally did get to meet years later. Um, But that's because he was interesting as a thinker and a talker and an observer, as well as as a musician. Whereas Bowie, I think I got everything I needed from him, from his music. So
0: tell me, uh, from the
1: Hunky Dory album, of all the tracks, tell me about the one that you've chosen. The song's dark and ambiguous and mysterious. and The best pop songs, like all the best art, is kind of like those inkblot tests that psychologists give you, you know, the Rorschach tests, um, where it's just a mass of blobs on the page, but... Everybody can see a picture in it, but it's different according to who you happen to be. And so I think with a lot of Bowie's records, he made them in such a way that a really diverse selection of pop fans could relate to them. Uh, And certainly I just read into this everything about the life that I wanted to live in the big city as a kind of, uh, I don't know, a a cool... uh, handsome, <laughs> <laughs> uh, stylish uh, person hanging out with my brother, my best mate and, uh, you know, there's the, the line about in the blessed and cold and the crutch-hungry dark was where we flayed our mark we were gone, kings of oblivion we were so turned on I mean, it, uh, yeah, it gave us something to aspire <laughs> Please come away. just for the day. Please come away. Please come away. Just for the day. It's come away. It's come away.
0: Who were the Inquisition, Tom?
1: The Inquisition was my first band at school. Um, and we played nearly all Manfred Mann songs because that's uh, was the uh, the first album I bought after buying that Beatles EP, was The Five Faces of Manfred Mann. And I just learnt uh, every song off the album and then forced my schoolmates to play the songs. Uh, we weren't very good, but we did our best. So and were you I the didn't... first
0: tribute act... <laughs>
1: I absolutely was, <laughs> and I, I developed the perfect Paul Jones singing voice, you know, I, I could actually uh, mimic him to a T. Yeah. And the strange thing is that many, many years later, uh, when Tom McGuinness from Manfred Mann uh, celebrated, I think, his 50th birthday or 40th birthday even, um, they reunited the band. Manfred himself wouldn't have any part in it, so they were one member par, one member down. So everybody swapped instruments around. And there was a free slot on bass and they asked me, me, if I would come and play bass with the Manfreds. And all those years as a schoolboy trying to learn those parts (laughs) and those songs and those words and the lyrics, suddenly I got to be in the actual band and play with them in public. It was like, A dream come true. And the funny thing was in rehearsal, Paul Jones hadn't sung the songs for a good 20 or 30 years and he'd forget the lyrics from time to time. I'd just step up to a backing vocal mic and cut in with the correct lyrics (laughs) in his his voice. Oh, brilliant. And it was such such a surreal experience. Uh Um,
0: Alexis Corner, meeting him had a huge influence on your career, didn't it?
1: Yeah, he was the first real charismatic musician communicator type person that I ever encountered in the flesh in real life uh, rather than seeing them on TV or on a stage far away in a venue and uh, it was just the fact that he was older he was in his 40s and he had no front to him at all he was just a bloke (laughs) carrying a guitar case, walked into a room full of um, teenagers and just opened the guitar case, took out the guitar, strapped it on, opened his mouth and sang. No props, no band, no microphone, no nothing. It was... That was... Everything cut down to its essence. And suddenly I could see that's what it's about. It's about I open my heart to you. Through my mouth, I sing, you receive it into your heart, and that bond that happens there in that room where you're in the same space together um, that's the essence of what it is we do. And everything else is just, you know, dressing on top mm. of that. Uh, so whether you put a microphone in the way or, and record it, or whether you do it on a stage with a band behind you or whatever, you know, that's just incidental. And that vision is something I've tried to keep to, even now when I go out and play a show in my 70s uh, in a small venue with a live audience. I mean, it's still that direct communication where you can actually share an emotion that goes beyond the words. You touch Mm. people... um, Hopefully, you know, if you do it well and if they're receptive.
0: But it also goes beyond listening to to it on record, doesn't it? Just being Definitely. there with them, yeah.
1: Totally does. I, the only other person I've seen really do that was Stevie Wonder. Um, was at the Ivers Award. He got an international award at the Ivor Novello Awards and uh, got up to accept the award and stood at the microphone and started telling stories. And there was a drunk in the audience who shouted, Sing! And we were all a bit embarrassed and go, shut up, shut up, let let Stevie tell his stories. And then another drunk went, "Yes, sing! And Stevie, bless him, just broke into song there and then at the microphone with no instruments, no nothing. He made up a song on the spot about being in London, how great it was to be in this gathering. And it was... The Stevie Wonder voice, the Stevie Wonder gift of melody, Stevie Wonder gift of lyrics being created for us in that room mm. with a generosity of spirit. and There wasn't a dry eye in the house. I had tears pouring down my face, leapt on my feet as did everybody else mm. as, as he sang because he just touched you heart to heart. Stevie sang from his heart, you received it right there, bang, in the middle of your chest. It really was uh, astonishing.
0: The other thing I That's... always found that he's very clever at, if you listen to um, the USA for Africa, We Are the World, he comes on yeah. at the end and literally changes the whole tune. Yeah. But, but doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah, it's, yeah. He's, he's clever a genius, way of... Man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you moved to London in 73. What were the circumstances that led you to team up uh, two years later with the uh, Acoustic Trio Café Society?
1: Well, it was... I already... These were friends of mine already. And actually, it was as soon as I hit London that the phone calls started and we decided to try and form a band. But uh, we didn't have any money. You know, I was... I'd managed to get my first job working as a clerk in a music publishing company and uh, they were cleaning flats or whatever, the other two guys. So all we had was two acoustic guitars. So there was no possibility of forming a rock band and rehearsing in a big rehearsal room or going out in a transit van and doing gigs with a drummer. The only possibility we had was to play in the folk clubs because they didn't need any amplification and your two acoustic guitars were enough. So the other two guys were good songwriters and good singers, much better than me. Uh, At at that time, I hadn't written any songs that I would... (laughs) cheerfully let you listen to mm. it now. So um, my role was to be the arranger in that band and arrange vocal harmonies that we could sing with our acoustic guitars and arrange the songs in a way that gave them impact when we performed them in the club. And we did gradually make our way on the folk scene uh, around London and ended up with our own residency at the Troubadour Club. So uh, we must have been doing something right.
0: And the album that The Thuvian made was produced by uh, Ray
1: Davis. (laughs) Yes, it didn't sound anything like us, mind you. I didn't. In those days, you know, producers um, imposed their will on the artist. It was um, the the performer and songwriter was at the bottom of the heap. And that's certainly (laughs) the way that Ray Davis himself had been treated when he came through. Uh, and it's lucky that enough of him was able to shine through. But uh, it was like, here's Neil, he's going to play drums on your record. Uh, uh, here's Phil, he's going to play yeah. electric guitar on your record. And, um, you know, you met them for the first time in the studio when you showed them the chords. So we, nothing of what we did on stage made it onto the final record, really, apart from the lyrics and the melodies. Are you bitter so, about that? Me? No, not a bit. I mean, it was incredibly lucky to get a record deal. Yeah. And um, we got paid a retainer of 25 quid a week each so that we could give up the day jobs and focus on music. We got to tour supporting the Kinks, uh, supporting Barclay James Harvest and Alan Hull. Oh, so it was a foot into the music what, industry. an education. Yeah, it was, it was. And uh, yes, of course, uh, our dreams got, stomped on, Mm. and uh, we didn't get much respect, and uh, the financial deal wasn't very good in the end. Uh, It cost me 25 grand to get out of it, but um, at the same time, it was a break and I was lucky to get it, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. How
0: in 1976 did the formation then of the Tom Robinson Bad come about? Because a Sex Pistols concert had a lot to do with it, didn't it?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I saw the Sex Pistols and realized whatever the next big thing was, it certainly wasn't going to be an acoustic harmony. Trio. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was that was the thing there, and uh, several things came together as well, you know, that <clears throat> there were. There was police violence against uh, the gay community at that time, uh, as well as against the black community in Notting Hill and Brixton. And I was working with a group of radical New York uh, gay activists in a theatre company, uh, and they fired me up as well. about. Uh, I think the, the key lesson was that freedom was indivisible. You can't stand up for gay rights but say that a woman's place is in the home or uh, people with a different colour skin are second-class citizens or anything, you know. You either live in a free and a fair society or you don't. That Mm. was the basic message of gay liberation. It was gay liberation is everyone's liberation. You've got to fight for a fairer society if you want your rights to get respected. So that was the main thing that kind of fired me up that I had to go and form a band of my own because... Um, I just f- felt it It was an urgency that we had to talk about these things. And Rock Against Racism was formed around the same time. That was a natural home for the music I was making. Mm. Uh, so we tried to kind of make the Tom Robinson Band, the modestly named Tom Robinson Band, into a, a kind of broad-based uh, campaigning group. And campaigning wasn't the only thing we did as well. So I think if we'd just been an activist pro-LGBT group who just sh- shouted at people about uh, gay rights um, from beginning to end of the show, I'd, I'm not sure we would have ever have built an audience. Mm. But because we had songs about, you know, My Brother Martin or Greg or Tina's or 2468 Motorway, uh, as well as the activist songs uh and because the activism was focused on a much broader front than just for lgbt rights uh i think it seemed to appeal to people i'm very glad it did
0: was it was it difficult getting uh music journalists and broadcasters to refer to you as the tom robertson band rather than tom Robinson? because joe jackson went through the same problem didn't he it was the joe jackson band and no one ever called them the joe jackson band
1: yeah, I mean, it's basically when I left Café Society, I, uh, the first thing I had to do was get some gigs so that I could then entice musicians to come and play with me because there would be somewhere for them to play. So obviously, before anything else, getting gigs after I'd left the old band was the priority. So I went round to a load of venues where we'd played and said, can I have a gig for my new band? And they said, sure, what's the band called? And, of course, the first thing should have been think of a band name then go and get some gigs but I didn't <laughs> I did it the wrong way I so wish I'd said the adverts or the clash or yeah. <laughs> something like something like that but I was stumped and I went oh it's the um um, um the Tom Robinson band and that was the biggest mistake at the time yeah. because it meant that uh, it wasn't just a project for that time that you could then walk away from uh, kind of your name was yeah. kind of nailed to the front of the band
0: Let's uh, move on to your third choice for the wonderful, wonderful Nina Simone.
1: Yes, I came to her late. I mean, this record we're about to hear was recorded live in 1964 at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, you know, the the early Civil Rights Movement at that time when Dr. Dr. King was still alive. And um, you can just hear the power in her delivery, the anger, the passion... And the injustice uh, is so beautifully, powerfully expressed. Um, and look out for the line as this is going through. There's this killer line. She goes, you don't have to live next to me. Just give me my equality. Mm. And uh, it's it's a killer. I didn't hear it until the mid-70s, in fact, but... Uh, The moment I did, it just blew me completely away. And if anybody's listening to this who hasn't heard the song before, I hope it'll have the same effect on you. Just give me my equality
0: Robinson's third choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love, The Brilliant Mississippi Goddamn from Nina Simone. Tom, when you were 16, uh, at a time in 66 when it was still illegal to be gay, you had a breakdown. How did that manifest itself, especially, I presume without being able to tell anybody why?
1: I think to be honest, I was quite a disturbed kid anyway, you know, I, I was a depressive and I was quite isolated and I did pretty much live in a fantasy world. So, uh, I think the homosexuality didn't help, uh, but, um, it was just kind of a, a last straw that broke the camel's back when I, uh, fell in love with this other boy at school. And, um, just i was de- developing paranoia's and i was sure he was telling all his friends and persecuting me and stuff and i just took an overdose uh, in the dormitory at school and hoped never to wake up and when i did wake up next morning it took about 2 seconds to realize that uh, i was still alive and shouldn't be and uh, that i was so useless i couldn't even manage to commit suicide and Something just kind of snapped. I mean, it was a strange thing, but I just broke out in floods of tears and everything became a problem. Just putting my socks on took half an hour. Mm. Just getting up from the bed, uh, it was like I was a, a puppy whose strings had been cut. So the people at the school very quickly realised there was something amiss and I was taken to the headmaster's office and then uh, packed off to... Um, a mental facility in Cambridge where they told me to put on my pyjamas and get into bed because I was ill. Uh, and, uh, you know, they gave me drugs and took my temperature and charts at the end of the bed. And the whole thing was medicalized. And mm. the thing was, because people didn't know how to cope with a queer teenager at that uh, time or for many years afterwards, it was... I. Homosexuality was either medicalized or it was demonised, so it was a sin and you had to be exercised, or it was a crime, criminalised. Uh, it was one of those three things.
0: So you were stuffed anyway? Uh, from stuffed all sides. anyway.
1: Well, you know what? I mean, I spent six weeks in that hospital and it was horrible um, being having this kind of chemical cosh to just keep you subdued uh, and then being asked idiot questions by idiot psychiatrists and being shown ink blot tests and you know we talked about those earlier and uh, I couldn't see any way forward I couldn't see any future you know and mm. uh, then I just had a stroke of luck really it was that the head teacher, the headmaster, who had um, seen me when I first had the breakdown, knew of a place in Kent that dealt with uh, difficult adolescence, and uh, arranged for my father to take me down there for an interview. And uh, this is a couple of months later, and we none of neither of us knew what to expect, and we pulled into this courtyard after a sort of three-hour drive where there was a ancient Jacobean manor house that was really battered and uh, all the broken half the windows had been broken and then mended again then broken and then mended again and there was a row of unkempt faces staring out at us uh, from one of the windows <laughs> and we thought what on earth is this but then uh, we went to the front door and I was ushered into uh, an oak-paneled study where this uh, 70-something-year-old man uh, with a slight stoop <clears throat> and wearing a sports jacket and misty plastic glasses out kind of uh, came over and took my hand and I went to shake hands with him and he held it in both of his hands and looked over the top of his glasses straight into my eyes. It was really disconcerting. And, hello, he said. He said, you're very lonely, aren't you? And, you know, after all the medical nonsense mm. to have somebody just put his finger on what the problem was, just like that, yeah. I just knew I could trust this man. And that whatever else, this, there was a way out. So it it was amazing, you know, really, really amazing. I owe my life to that man. His and name was George Lyward, L-Y-W-A-R-D. And how long and did you stay there for? I stayed there for <laughs> five or six years, wow. to be honest. Yeah. Um, it was a community, a therapeutic community for disturbed adolescents. And uh, some of the boys there came from the criminal justice system... Some came just straight from education and some came from the medical establishment and were referred from mental hospitals. But the great thing was living there with, I think it was something like 40 or 50 other boys uh, and eight staff, about five or six dogs, any number of cats <laughs> in this in this huge grounds and uh, building it was extraordinary mm. um the community life there we did our we did the cooking we took it in turns to do the cooking we all did the cleaning and uh, the communal life was the therapy because if you if you decided not to do your washing up and it was your turn nobody else could eat and that, and that, that was pretty good therapy to persuade you to do mm. your washing up
0: In a 1994 interview for the Boston Globe newspaper, Tom, you said, uh, and I quote, we've been fighting for tolerance for the last 20 years and I've campaigned for people to be able to love whoever the hell they want. That's what we're talking about. Tolerance and freedom and liberty, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So if somebody won't grant me the same tolerance I've been fighting for them, hey, they've got a problem, not me. 28 years on, are we living in a more tolerant society, do you think?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, that was with reference to the fact that in my 30s, I once again fell in love with somebody of the wrong sex. So having made a name as a campaigner for gay rights uh, at a Gay Switchboard Benefit concert, I'd actually met somebody who I really fell for a big way who turned out to be female, and I found I was actually bisexual rather than homosexual. Right. And uh, at the time... I could kind of see other people's point, you know, it was, um, For activists, uh, it must have looked like a, a, a betrayal because it was... The AIDS crisis was kind of at its height and uh, we were being persecuted by the media uh, and by a hostile government, you know, Thatcher bringing in Section 28. Mm. So for somebody who'd been a spokesperson, to then apparently kind of, uh, quote-unquote, go straight, which is how the tabloids uh, portrayed it, Um, must have looked like a betrayal. And so, yes, of course, people got angry because there was no internet. So I couldn't go on Twitter or my own website and put my side of the story Mm. and say, I haven't gone straight, I've just expanded my possibilities. That's all that's happened here. You know, um, but when the when there's no internet, whatever's published in the papers, people believe. Yeah, and so um, yeah, that meant in the early nineties when you, that quote you you've just given us came from, um, there were some people who had a problem with it. But you know, things change, and uh, by '96 '97, gay pride had become LGBT Pride and there's a big fat B in the LGBT Mm. and uh, there was a bisexual stage at Pride and they invited me to come and play there and it was like a homecoming so uh, yeah, these days uh, it's different again and uh, thank God, for now at least, uh, there is a much greater degree of tolerance and equality Who knew 45 years ago, that out of the women's struggle, the struggle for racial equality, and the struggle for LGBT rights, that LGBT would be so far ahead of the others. Yeah. Because we've still got Me Too. We've still got Black Lives Matter. And those are still vital struggles going on there. Uh, And somehow uh, the queer community managed to kind of leapfrog ahead for the, as I say, for the time being.
0: Right, next up, Tom, tell me about uh, Marianne Faithful's Broken English.
1: Ah. Well, that was an amazing record because Marianne Faithful had been this kind of, what we used to call a dolly bird in the sexist old 60s uh, who was Mick Jagger's girlfriend and she sang as tears go by on top of the pops and she was pretty and then she was part of that drugs bust, uh, where she was found naked in a rug. Uh, And she'd been this kind of symbol of female innocence uh, with extraordinary beauty. Uh, And then 10, 15 years later, she made the Broken English album which just sounded like what it was. Her voice sounded wrecked. The the problems she'd had with drugs had all come to the fore. Uh, She'd had a hell of a life, if you read her biography. And so it's all in the voice uh, and the title of the album, and particularly in that lyric she wrote. And I was absolutely broken when I heard it. The song came out in 79, but I didn't hear it until 81, when I'd had to flee the country because I owed so much money to so many people because my career had crashed in ruins and burned. And I owed far, far more money than uh, uh, I had any hope of ever paying back to people. And I was in Berlin and uh, seeking kind of refuge in a gay sauna one night, um, probably stoned out of my box at the time, Mm. and onto the speaker system came broken English. And I instantly knew who it was. And uh, it was just summed up the way I felt. Absolutely penniless, broken, exiled in Berlin. And this line, don't say it in Russian, don't say it in German, say it in broken English. And... uh, yeah that's uh, that's what i had to do it just still brings a chill even now listening to that
0: your fifth choice uh tom is from public enemy
1: yeah now that was a revelation because um well i could admit it now but i mean to my shame i really didn't understand hip-hop when i first heard it in the early 80s uh, sugar hill gang and all those classics it just didn't get through to me uh It was like punk rock, where you had to recalibrate your ideas of what music was in order to kind of get punk rock. And you had to recalibrate massively to understand hip-hop and rap music. But with Public Enemy, the moment I put the headphones on and pressed play on the the Sony Walkman uh, for the album, it takes an edition of millions to hold us back... I got it. I mean, this was music unlike anything I'd ever heard in my life before. Because it was music made without instruments. It was only samples and voices. So the Bomb Squad, the Shockley Brothers, made these incredible backing tracks, just sampling bits of other records and turning them into a whole thing that grabbed you by the ears even though you couldn't say there's a tune there or there's a melody or a chord (laughs) sequence nothing and yet it just drew you into its world and this was I think of all the amazing songs that Public Enemy made Bring the Noise uh, it's not as immediate as Fight the Power but musically this is so extraordinary, the bomb squad preparing the backing track. It kind of goes, up, shifts up a gear halfway through. You're going to hear it and you go, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Uh, it was a revelation uh, and a wonderful, wonderful record. Yo, Chuck,
0: these only me are still fun on us. Don't know we can do this, because we always do this. Ha, <laughs> ha, yeah, boy. Bass, how low can you go? Death row? What a now, once again, back is the incredible Animal the You're listening to another edition of Radio Glamorgan's music my first love with broadcaster and singer songwriter Tom Robinson choosing 10 of his favorite tracks
1: Tinseltown in the Rain by the Blue Nile is the only record when I'm on the radio that always gets me up out of my seat and dancing in the studio. I mean, it's just irresistible, that groove and the passion, uh, the incredible vocal just soaring up there. Do I love you? Yes, I love hmm. you. I mean, uh, that's, that's definitely one to have played at my funeral, for sure. <laughs> After
0: the breakup of the Tom Robinson Band, you formed Sector 27, and after they broke up, uh, mental health struck again, and you chose to follow in the footsteps of uh, Bowie and headed off to Hamburg. Was Did you choose Hamburg because of Bowie, or were there other reasons?
1: Well, Bowie went to Berlin, in fact, and I would have gone there if I had any contacts, but I chose Hamburg simply because I had several friends there, uh, including... Uh, Horst Königstein, who had done the German words for Peter Gabriel's albums. So I had a connection in Hamburg through Peter Gabriel, who I'd been um, writing songs with. Uh, Well, I say grandly, I wrote three songs with. Uh, And it just meant that that gave me a base from which to uh, start making music again and learn to speak German before I finally made the uh, the full leap and went and lived in East Berlin for a short while and worked with an East German band. And uh, there I absolutely had to speak German because the only other language anyone spoke was Russian. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time in my life. And did it help you mentally? Um, no, psychotherapy helped me. Ah, right, I mean, okay. in, in the end, I had to find a therapist and commit to, um, to doing it. You know, as I say, I was i was not a, a, a kind of robust person emotionally in my teens. Well, I'm not generally, but, uh, you know, I've developed coping strategies. That's mm. what you do as you get older and you uh, acquire ways of living with these things. So what I'd say to anybody that's listening to this, who finds it hard inhabiting their own skin, you know, if you're finding it, really tough just to be you from day to day as i did um then there's help out there that i never had in the 60s um, it wasn't available in the 60s 70s uh it's only really recently i think the last 20 or 30 years that there's been proper support available at the end of a phone line for free and on a website and uh, Samaritans bless them, are there 365 days a year 24 mm. uh, seven and the numbers one, one, six, one, two, three. just you know you can call that from a mobile phone with no credit, and you'll still get through, and if you do call them, it won't go on your phone records, so it's completely confidential. and I'm here to tell you, if you reach out for the help, it does work, but you have to reach out for it. My therapist's favourite joke used to be, uh, "How many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb?" And the answer is only one, but it takes a long time, and the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. That's the yeah. truth. You really, you have to want the change. You have to will it, and reach out for it. And you have to decide to lo- live. You know, choose life. That's my advice. Do you
0: want to give us that number again for the Samaritans?
1: One one six one two three.
0: Next up, I'm so excited for your seventh choice, and making a well overdue debut on music was my first love. The incomparable Tom Waits, big fan,
1: huge fan of Tom Waits. Um, certainly from swordfish Trombones in the '80s. Uh, it's a, it's the moment Tom Waits started writing with his wife is when he became yeah. really interesting. Up to that point he'd been like a barroom piano crooner who wrote quite nice songs mm. which he sung in a gruff voice. But once Kathleen Brennan got involved, then he became this kind of mad junkyard blues crooner <laughs> and all these strange noises and rhythms and deconstructions came along. And in 1992 I was on tour with T.V. Smith, just the two of us, T.V. Smith from the adverts, and we were playing two acoustic guitars and we went and did an in-store show for a record shop somewhere up north. And the manager of the record shop gave us an album each, said, choose whatever you like. So T.V. chose the new Tom Waits album, which was Bone Machine. And we had a CD player in the car and we used to just put it on after every gig driving to the hotel. And both of us singing at the tops of our voices every word of every song on this album. It's uh, completely extraordinary. I've chosen you quite a tame one. By comparison, <laughs> because uh, it's just got such sinister lyrics. There's a line line in here: uh, "When the moon is a cold chiseled dagger, and it's sharp enough to draw blood from a stone." He rides through your dreams on a coach and horses, and the fence posts in the moonlight look like bones. Ever I ever Ever I.
0: to uh, ask you Tom about writing collaborations and I I have to say a couple of self-indulgent questions that I've wanted to know so firstly how did you come to work with Martin Joseph
1: Uh, we met on a TV show I think he remembers which one it was uh, in Northern Ireland Uh, we were both on there and I think both singing live and uh, it was when dolphins make me cry Hmm. Uh, had just come out, and so his record company had sent him out there, and uh, he was assigned to a major label, and I was signed to a smaller label, and uh, we just got chatting and hit it off, and uh, we ended up uh, over the years we've played together a number of times. Uh, we even had a band together called Faith Folk and Anarchy, and uh, he's just a sterling human being. I mean, and a wonderful performer. He's one of the best one-man shows i've ever seen just martin and his guitar, mm. guitar and his stories and his bond with the audience he's a wonderful player
0: and the other one i wanted to ask you about and, and i'm guessing he but you may already have touched on this earlier i wanted to ask you about uh working with elton john the most famous of his songs that you co-wrote uh, is probably sartorial eloquence but the particular song I'm interested in is from one of my favourite and most underrated Elton albums, which is The Fox. How did uh-huh. how did Elton's song come about? And in particular, the subject matter and title. Had it been Elton's story? Did you speak to him before you wrote it?
1: No. And I'm so glad you picked that one because that is his favourite and my favourite of all the songs we did. The others I gave... I gave him a lyric like Bernie does every time. You know, he was, he'd fallen out with Bernie briefly, so I had a chance to uh, co-write with him a, a couple of times. And I gave him a couple of lyrics, and he just sat at the piano and immediately wrote a melody for it, just made one up on the spot, mm. that's the way he works. But Elton's song, as it's called on there, um, he just had the melody. He, he'd written unusually. He'd written a a melody and in those days being able to pull something out of your pocket and record was a rarity. These days we think nothing of it with the phone. But Mm. actually a recording Walkman with a decent quality mic on it was quite a a rare thing. And I had one because I'd just come back from Japan uh, (coughs) in the uh, 79, 80, before they were really widespread. So he sat at the piano and sang this and I recorded it on my Walkman. And, um, I went away and that night sat down and wrote the lyric and sent it to him and I didn't hear anything back. And I thought he didn't like it. It didn't, didn't work for him. Uh, and there was silence for about three months, uh, but he was away on tour in America as it happened. And, uh, when he got back, he gave me a call and went, that's brilliant. I love that mm. song. It's so good. And, uh, he called me over and uh, played it to me. It was just great. And the the lyric I'd written about that love affair, I told you. It wasn't a love affair. It was a a one-way obsession. Uh, There was no reciprocation. And, uh, as I say, the other guy didn't even know about it. But it was that idea of longing from afar. So I put that whole teenage experience into it. And I think... As I say, it was a generational thing. There was a whole generation of LGBT plus kids uh, through the 60s who had to hide their love away and who couldn't kind of bring it into music. And so uh, that furtiveness of the longing from afar uh, obviously resonated with Elton in the lyric
0: was the title his
1: then? Did he come up with the title for it? No, the thing is, I'd uh, I'd written the lyric, and he hadn't. He didn't have a title for it, so I had just put on the top of the sheet "Elton's song," so that I knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's the song I'd just written for Elton that he'd created the music for. Uh, so I called it "Elton's song," and he kept that as its title. But the thing about uh, it's hard to put this into to express this properly in words. The thing is, there is something different about the way a man fancies another man from the way a man fancies a woman Mm. or the way that a woman fancies a man. It's not only to do with the pronouns. It's the kind of things that you would find attractive in the other person. And that's what kind of, I think, resonated for him in this lyric. So, I love your gypsy hair and your dark brown eyes. I'm Mm. always unprepared for your pointed replies. Cynical and lean, I lie awake and dream about you. Uh, You know, those aren't attractive qualities in the traditional boy-meets-girl narrative that uh, a man wouldn't generally say, oh, she's cynical and lean, how attractive. But in A Boy, it was absolutely... uh, Hubbard. i my for a
0: single night you. I have to say, final word on, on working with Elton. I, I've heard stories over the years that maybe because of uh, the place that he was in, but it's not his most favorite album, but there's some great stuff on there. There really is. Yeah,
1: I think that. The interesting thing is that he still plays that song live from time to time. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the few songs from that album that he does still play. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm grateful. How did radio broadcasting come your way? Accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> totally by accident. I was playing a show uh, to promote the album, the War Baby album, Hope and Glory at uh the dominion in london and a producer from the bbc world service came backstage and i thought she was going to come back and say ah oh, what great songs they were lovely we, we must play more of your music on the radio and instead she said i really like the bits in between the songs where you talk to the audience <laughs> she said you've got a great voice for radio would you like to have a show of your own and uh that was the last thing I was expecting. Mm. And uh, I was slightly miffed that she didn't say anything nice about the songs. But, uh, yeah, she gave me my own 15-minute show once a week on the BBC World Service called New Waves on the Shortwave. And then from that I went on to sit in for on Radio 1 when Janice Long went on holiday. And then from that I, I got to do Pick of the Week on Radio 4. And then I had my own a uh, magazine programme on Radio 4 in the early 90s called The Locker Room, which was a Saturday night magazine programme for men about masculinity, toxic and otherwise. Um, so I I was used to being behind a microphone and broadcasting, but I'd never done the kind of proper DJ thing of driving a desk and mm. uh, throwing out faders open and uh, talking over records and all the rest of it. I know that's a cardinal sin for any musician talking over records, but it's something that you have to do to pack as many records as you need to into the limited time you have uh, and still get the messaging across. So uh, talking over intros and outros is, uh, alas, uh, one of those things I've gradually learned to do.
0: A necessary evil. It is. Uh, And Six Music holds a special place in your heart, doesn't it?
1: Well, Six Music gave me the chance to do it full-time. So when Six Music started, uh, the head of Radio 2, Leslie Douglas, said, "You know, we're starting this new station, would you like to come in and be on air four nights a week? And uh, I said, no, I can't do that, I'm afraid. I've got to go out and gig uh, just to pay the mortgage and put food on the table. And she said, well, how much do you make from that? And I told her, she said, oh, that's all right, we'll pay you that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it wasn't very much. And so, uh, yeah, I could sleep in my own bed and watch my kids grow up and uh, have a life. But most importantly, I could rekindle my love of music. Yeah, That was the great thing. Once the focus went off trying to make my own music competing with with what was going on out there, to actually just sit back and enjoy what else was going on there, enjoy the competition, listen to Radio Home and go, oh, my God! (laughs) How did they even do that? Mm. Um, I think, you know, from those early years, um, well, the PJ Harvey stories from the city, stories from the sea had come out two years earlier and it was still all over the place and we were playing it uh, nonstop. this song in particular. I kind of remembered it as being the state we're in because that was a famous book about why Britain was in crisis in 1996. But uh, the song's actually called This Mess. In 97,
0: uh, you became the recipient of a Sony um Academy Award for a documentary, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. A great honour, I suspect, not only just for winning the award, but also for the uh, that particular documentary.
1: <laughs> well, particularly that it was on the BBC, because the BBC, uh, well, Radio 1 at least, had uh, given me a kind of uh, ban because of Glad to be Gay. So to have my hand shaken by the director general of the BBC <laughs> and, and be thanked for having made a documentary about that same subject uh, only 20 years later, was a a great joy. What is Fresh on the Net? Fresh on the Net is a music blog where we support um, the artists that I don't have enough airtime to play on the radio. Uh, There's so much great music out there, and I only get one hour a week these days to play new music. So, um, clearly, you need some other way of uh, supporting emerging artists and uh, giving them a place where they can send music and it will get heard and listened to, and then giving the public a chance to pick their favourites. just seems a way of giving back, really, um, and uh, I've discovered some amazing stuff uh, in the course of that. Uh, Europe
0: is lost from Kate Tempest. This is uh, new to me. Tell me about this one.
1: K, Kate Tempest, as she was at the time, and K Tempest, K A E, as she is now, uh, is, I think, possibly the most extraordinary artist to emerge through the six music airwaves, I think, in the last five or six years. Started out as a performance poet, uh, but quickly moved to working with Dan Carey, the producer, uh, who put beats and music together behind it. And she's made a series uh, of extraordinary records, of which uh, the Let Them Eat Chaos uh, was the second and this track we're going to hear is from that second album. It was released a year early. They finished it in November 2015. Um, this is even before Brexit. Uh, but they were so fired up with it that they put it out a year early. And it then appeared on the album Let Them Eat Chaos uh, just after Brexit had happened. And so... Uh, Appropriately enough, the song is called Europe Is Lost. Her eyes are sore, her muscles ache, she cracks a beer and swigs it. She holds it to her thirsty lips and necks it till it's finished. It's 4.18am again. Her brain is full from all she's done that day. She knows that she won't sleep a wink before the sun is on its way. What can you
0: tell me about your tenth or final choice, Tom, from Field Music?
1: Well, we're... K Tempest is all about the lyrics and all about the messaging. Field music, Sunderland's finest, the Brewis brothers, David and Peter Brewis, have been making fine music since the early noughties. Um, They're prodigiously, stupidly talented. And they make music just from left field. There's a slight body swerve with everything that they do. So instead of just playing the chords that immediately fall to hand or the chord sequences that immediately crop up, as most of us do, their songs always have a slight twist, a slight edge, and they're constantly evolving and changing. And they made a wonderful album in... Well, and they did a session for me in 2005 where the two brothers were... Take it in turns to play guitars and basses or the drum kit, and they just had a keyboard player to fill the sound out, and all three of them sang, and it was they made the most amazing noise with just three of them, and uh, they've continued to astonish ever since, and I think this is my favourite of all their records. Um, it's a song about privilege, you know, the fact that we we don't actually count our blessings, we don't actually. Um, check our own privileges and see the built-in advantages that those of us who are white and male and not on the breadline have. Uh, you know, um, so it's got a great line. If you can go through day-to-day without fear of violence, well, count that up. And if people don't stare at you on the street because of the colour of your skin, count that up as well. So it's all about counting your blessings. Mm. It's a great thing.
0: When you look back uh, on a very long, very busy and very successful career, is there one thing professionally and, and also personally that you're most proud of?
1: Yes, the Rock Against Racism carnival against the Nazis in uh, early in 1978 and steel pulse uh, were on the bill the clash x-ray specs and trb and we wanted to just take a stand against the racist poison of the national front who were in danger of becoming a respectable political party then and uh, i'm so proud that we did that because it was in tune with the mood of the times. We had no idea how much support there was for tolerance and brotherhood and equality and uh, people standing together in solidarity. We thought maybe 10,000, 20,000 might turn up. And in the end, 80,000 mm-hmm. people marched through the streets of London to the National Front's stronghold in Hackney in the East End of London and uh, just... We played to a huge crowd. Uh, the sound system was terrible because it was designed <laughs> to, for people, a crowd like, you know, a quarter of that size. But um, it's such a memorable day to have been part of. And there's a wonderful film about it called White Riot by Rubika Shah. And she documents it beautifully. And yes, looking at that film, I'm so, so proud above all else to have been part of that day.
0: You present a couple of shows uh, on Six Music, one of which clashes with my Radio Glamorgan Music Saturday night show, which I won't uh, hold against you.
1: Um, uh, not anymore. I've been taken off air.
0: Uh, it's because I'm getting all the listening figures, you see. That's, that's what right. it is. They've, they've <laughs> taken me off.
1: No, so oh. My Saturday night show has gone. So all I have now is the BBC introducing mixtape in the middle of the night, uh, which is just one hour a week, and then there's a request show called Now Playing at Six Music on Sundays.
0: You've been a long. You've been on a long tour during 2022, and recently celebrated your 72nd birthday. I can't see you as a pipe slippers and cardigan man who's likely to start taking it easy. So, what's the future plans for Tom Robertson as we head into 2023?
1: <sighs> well, I'd like to try and write a memoir. I've, I've tried, <laughs> tried to put stuff down. On uh, Not on paper, on a screen, obviously, but uh, uh, it's quite hard to get it down. Uh, But it's been a strange and interesting life, and one I've been very grateful to have had, and uh, maybe sharing details of that might be helpful for other people. Um, Who knows? Anyway, yeah. If I can, I'll try and write that memoir.
0: It's been a real thrill. Thank you, Tom Robinson. (laughs)
1: Oh, you're so kind, Andrew Wolf. Thank you very much, too. Um, and uh, good luck for the rest of the series.
0: You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Tom Robinson has been choosing 10 of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolf, and join me again soon when someone else chooses 10 of their favourite tracks on another edition. Music was my first love. Music of the future.